0: From Impact Alpha Media, this is a special episode of Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. June 2017 marked the 10th anniversary of LiquidNet for Good, the corporate impact program I helped launch and oversee. To mark the occasion, we hosted a forum at LiquidNet's global headquarters in New York, featuring three panels exploring what the next decade will look like across the spectrum of impact, philanthropy, impact investing, and business as a force for good. This episode features audio from the panel on the future of impact investing. Georgia Keohane, executive director of the Pershing Square Foundation, moderated the conversation. Conversation featured Liz Luckett, president of TCEF, which stands for the Social Entrepreneurs Fund, Brian Trelstad, a partner with Bridges Fund Management, and Daniel Pianco, the co-founder and managing director of University Ventures. Georgia from Pershing Square will be the first person you hear.
1: I'm going to just jump right in. Um, Daniel, Liz, and Brian, all of you are working, albeit in different sectors, um, and in some cases, different geographies, I think, to address really entrenched social, um, in some cases, environmental problems that even the most effective philanthropy that we heard about a little bit earlier hasn't always been able to crack or solve. Um, And in some cases, you're addressing social problems, environmental problems, that the public sector really hasn't sufficiently addressed. And there have been market failures, so I, I think' it's, it's fair to say that even though you all are working as investors, um, your predecessors in the capital markets really haven't necessarily cracked all the problems we're trying to crack. So I guess what I would ask, and Brian, we can start with you, is talk a little bit about how you came to this this work. You know you've worked in you've worked in philanthropy, you've worked in sort of hybrid investing. How did you come to this investment thesis um, and this work with with bridges um, and maybe? Give, give that brief overview. And if you want to hop into a few of also the, um, the investments that you've made recently to illustrate, that would be great.
2: Great. Happy to be here and want to thank um, Brian and, and Seth. And, and really want to just call out, um, particularly Brian, for the role that he plays in um, corporate philanthropy. Uh, I, I think foundations are a reflection of the corporation or the person who made the money. And Seth's humility really bleeds through Brian, who I think punches well above his weight. Um, the fact that he's part of, you know, the fund for. Fair Amen. So, uh, I, I don't think Liquid Net for Good has a nine billion dollar uh, endowment, and yet you're sitting around the table with foundations who are really setting the stage. And it's in part because of the way you practice philanthropy. So I want to just acknowledge that uh, at the get-go. I'm also really glad that Faye's here because I've been writing a letter to Larry Kramer since uh, his, his Monday uh, Stanford Social Innovation Review piece, which repudiated the idea that foundations should play a role in impact investing. So I'll, I'll, I'll deliver um, that to you in person after the session. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so the question, how did I get into impact investing, kind of sheer luck. Uh, I was finishing up Stanford Business School and a, an alum who was at the time working at the Rockefeller Foundation, named Jacqueline Novogratz, was trying to come up with a business plan for a new philanthropic intermediary that would connect high net worth folks in the U.S. with innovators in emerging markets. And Acumen Fund was born out of that. I wrote the business plan, went off to McKinsey for a few years, but had always been in the social enterprise, social innovation space and decided I wanted to go back. Became the chief innovation officer. I was there for eight years. Uh, and really loved working with uh, social entrepreneurs in emerging markets and trying to connect philanthropy to their work. We were at a point in time where our work was helping pave the way for philanthropy to make investments safe for larger institutional investors like the uh, International Finance Corporation or other uh, local venture capital firms and private equity firms that were getting set up. So we played a catalytic role in the, the evolution of the impact investing field. But as I got off the 14 hour flights from New Delhi to Newark and realized that the same challenges of access to education and quality health care and environmental challenges existed here at home, I wanted to work with entrepreneurs solving problems um, in, in my backyard. So I, I left Acumen at the end of 2011, early 2012 and set out to raise a fund um, and found out through uh, friends and connections at Bridges, uh, then called Bridges Ventures, was thinking about entering the US market. Bridges was founded in about 2001 by a handful of partners, one of whom was Ronald Cohen, who'd left Apex Partners, a leading private equity firm, to try and build an impact firm uh, from the beginning with the DNA of impact and investment rigor as part of it. And now we manage about a $1 billion of of assets under management globally. About $100 of that is here in the US focused on growth equity and real estate. Um, and you know we're, we're tremendously excited to see the evolution of the field over the last um, uh, four or five years and think that there continues to be a role for that built for purpose impact fund that can build businesses that have impact intrinsic into how they do uh, their work. And and just as a quick example, because I want to make sure uh, Liz and and Daniel share their perspectives, we've invested in an after-school education business that competes in a space where many high-quality, you know, perhaps Edna McConnell-Clark backed social enterprises like citizen schools work with kids after school from 3 to 6 p.m. We think that there's a way to scale high quality after school academic enrichment using a private sector model. And so springboard education is trying to compete in an an incredibly fragmented market, delivering quality service to kids whose mothers, fathers, are otherwise working and can't pick them up at 3 o'clock. And so folks in the social science world know that 3 to 6 is kind of the danger zone for a bored middle school kid. And what we're trying to do is find a way to constructively engage them and make sure they get their homework done. And that's an example of the kind of investment we're making today.
1: Terrific. Thank you. Um, Liz, you continue to invest both in emerging markets and in the U.S., so you're not tired of the plane rides yet, Um, but could you tell us a little bit of the the genesis of the Social Entrepreneurs Fund um, and how you think about your investments?
3: Sure. So also very happy to be here, and thank you, Brian, um, for inviting us. So the Social Entrepreneurs Fund was started in 2011 as an idea of looking at the intersection between philanthropy and investing by a bunch of high net worth financial services people who are really interested in understanding at those days. So if you're looking backwards, um, whether a social investment was much more like philanthropy in terms of being hundred percent losses and um, you know a tax credit or whether it was something you could look more like venture and so honestly the first fund was really set up to figure that out would, would, would you make early-stage investments in socially motivated companies and was there anything um, useful in doing that? Could you actually address them in the social problems? So I'd say over the last five to 10 years, that's where the market has been. Just materializing this market, does it exist? What does it look like? Um, Are there these investments? um, Are they tangible? And will they have any returns? So my own background um, and the lens with which I invest through is, is very different. And Brian and I came from the private sector. I started my career at, at Gartner, where I did a lot of um, tech analysis. And wound up helping them do M&A at the company, buying a lot of data-oriented companies. And then left to start my own uh, predictive modeling and data analytics business, focused on um, targeting customers. And using, um, and this is in the late 90s, early 2000s, using that data to find the um, Pharmaceuticals had just been deregulated. So how could you find a pharmaceutical client? What was a direct-to-consumer market look like? How did we start to um, centralize data around a single customer record? So all of this was informing my views about inefficiencies in marketplaces. And so I went to City to do a similar job. Um, and when I left there, in my corporate detox phase, started doing some... Um, uh, I spent some time with nonprofits like Donors Choose and some others who are here in the room today helping with my data insights to just volunteer my time and realized that there was a, a lot of earned revenue in these companies. And I was thinking, is there a way to decrease your dependency on philanthropy? What can we do to, to focus on that? And out of that, wound up at the Pershing Square Foundation investing their endowment along those lines, thinking about how can we start to um, focus on investing in companies that. Um, are investing in, in ideas that, that are similar to nonprofits, but simply trying to gain traction and decrease the philanthropy. I, I've always said the one thing that very high net worth investors have in common is that they don't like the dependency of the social programs they care about. It starts to weigh on them, and they want them, you know, they think if my funding goes away, what will happen to this cause? And that is honestly, in my, in my opinion, the one thing they have in common. I wouldn't say any much else was similar about them. But they, they want to decrease that dependency. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of the business models come from. I, I'll talk about one investment, which is um, an interesting one, just because it is it falls in this space, which is um, clinica Castella Azucar, which is a low-cost diabetes care in northern Mexico, in Monterey. This is someone who has built, he, his first clinic was in a um, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken the former uh, store so ironic um, and he found that um, <coughs> diabetes is the number one killer in Mexico and it's also the number one cause of suicide um, and that's because the government is the main source of um, medical care. It's about a three-month wait to see a doctor. And it's just not working. So he set up these clinics. He's an MIT grad. And he took a very operational approach to it. And in the last five, six years since he's been running, he's just opened his eighth clinic. There's not a lot of private capital interested in something moving at that pace. Most private capital is saying, OK, great. You figure you have two clinics. How do you get to 100 next year and then you know, 1,000 the year after? And we were saying, no, no, get it right. you know. So what he's learned by opening eight clinics, he's now, in a month, they're break even. They are now um, serving. Um, he's, he's lowered his customer cost of acquisition. And he recognizes in each neighborhood who he's serving and what exactly needs to be. He's operationalized the four stages of going through those clinics to such a point that he is ready for scale now. But he needed patient capital. If you can solve low-cost diabetes care, that is a global problem now. And it is something that if he gets it's right. There's a number of strategic large investors circling him all the time saying, great, can we take this to Saudi Arabia, can we take it to, you know, every other country in the world.
1: Um, and, and Daniel, I'd love you to talk about your, um, your education investment thesis and the types of companies you invest in. I'd also love, and, and if we have time to everyone else weigh in a little bit. How much do you, when you are raising money or when you're making investments, actually intentionally use the impact lens and frame? How useful is that to you? How potentially uh, fraught is that for you? Um, I think that as we talk about evolution, the future of this field, I think an interesting question is going to be whether that lens and whether that um, nomenclature remains relevant or helpful.
4: Yeah. First of all, I want to join the Brian fan club. He welcomed me to a place that I am, uh, I probably do need an introduction because I have run from the impact label. Um, And that might sound a little heretical. Uh, We have 8,000 students online in Africa at an ultra low cost. One of our medical schools educates 12% of the Latinos uh, who become doctors in this country. We're changing the way people pay for college by transitioning from student loans to income-based repayment options. So we're changing the world, but have run like heck from the impact label. And let me tell you why. Our best university in this country is Harvard University. It's also one of America's most successful corporations. That's right, it's the Harvard Corporation. It's got a $40 billion of cash on its balance sheet. It owns half of downtown Boston. Oh, and by the way, it's got a $100 billion brand. We run our operations to be the best for our students and for the people we're serving. And we believe that providing the best level of service providing, getting our uh, students who are Latinos, passing their boards at rates higher than the US average, even though they come from low-income areas, to be absolutely critical. Not because it's a social good, although it is, but because it's a a business imperative. I love areas where we have a business imperative that ties to a social good. And so when we've raised our capital, historically we've run from the social impact label. Why? Because once someone puts you in the social impact bucket, They think think it's concessionary capital. I hate concessionary capital. Who the heck can tell you why I should be at 6% return versus 8% return versus 12% return? I don't know. Is graduating Latino doctors more or less important than graduating students in Africa paying $2,000 a year for a a, uh, UK-based and branded educational degree? I don't know which one should have a better return. I think everyone in this room would have trouble. we, when we've raised our funds, have said, "Look, we put we are we put student outcomes co-equal with economic outcomes, but we're going to return top quartile returns." And you know, I, I came as sort of a reluctant participant to this world. Actually, Brian was was the uh, gateway drug. Um, <laughs> And and he introduced me to to Brian. And and I think part of the reason I'm here, and it's actually interesting you mentioned Larry Kramer article, because I read that and I I vacillated between wanting to shake him and wanting to be like, you know, he's actually got a point here. (laughs) Which is, I want to be able to go to his endowment managers and say, I'm going to perform better than any other fund out there. And the reason why is because the results I'm going to get you economically are better than anybody else. But every investment you make has a social impact. If I go out and back tobacco companies, oil and gas companies, what, what's another bad thing to back on? Uh, what, what should we, you know, prisons, <laughs> slavery, you know, bad things. Every investment decision is a social impact decision, and I want people that are sitting up here to be able to walk confidently. I think social impact does a disservice to himself. And actually, I should write this article. <laughs> uh, I think social impact does a disservice to itself by saying, no, we, we want concessionary capital. We should confidently walk into every uh, meeting we have with LPs, and we should say just, and the GIN actually did a really interesting report that showed that social impact funds do better than non-social impact funds. I want to be able to confidently go into every LP we meet with and say, just like every other social impact LP, we're going to have top quartile returns. And by the way, when you come visit our medical school down in Puerto Rico and see these kids graduate, you're going to cry. And that's what I think of the future of social impact investing is
1: okay thanks. so I just want to unpack this a little bit more because I actually think that um, there's some useful difference of opinion a little bit or at least difference in, in investment thesis around um, th- this this label um, and then what it allows you to invest in and what you might have to pass on so I'm um, actually maybe I will jump quickly to the um, gateway drug <laughs> uh, and, and and then to Liz so Brian I know you've thought a lot about this and sometimes I think a little bit is sort of where you stand depends on where you sit, literally who's across the table from you in, in terms of how you present your work. How have you wrestled with this and, and where are you now um, in your new set of investments on, on whether impact matters?
2: I'm, I'm non-addictive, uh, by the way, as a, as a gateway yeah. drug. So we don't have a choice but to lead with impact because we sort of have it tattooed on our forehead uh, as bridges. We set ourselves up with that thesis. I think. Uh, Daniel does have a point. It is a challenge in the fundraising when you go into institutional asset managers, there is a perception or has been that uh, impact investing must be concessionary. And I think one of the challenges for the impact investing space is it's one label for a multiplicity of strategies. What Acumen Fund does with philanthropic capital to invest in businesses at an early stage in Kenya is fundamentally different from what Bridges does with more commercial capital in the United States. Um, There is a long tradition of community development finance which was expert at taking concessionary patient capital using CRA money, Community Reinvestment Act money, which had to be deployed and therefore was willing to take. Uh, a lower than market return on fixed income to make things happen. So if I'm sitting at, you know, the Harvard uh, Management Company thinking about this, my worldview may be tainted by the story I read about Jacqueline Novogratz using Gates' money to invest in Africa or maybe uh, my familiarity with Boston Community Capital, which does make concessionary investments and is less familiar with uh, University Ventures or Bridges Ventures, which when we go to the market, we say we will deliver market returns. There's also a little bit of hype around venture. Median venture returns from 2000 are zero. So you're lucky if you've gotten your money back from a venture fund. Now, there are top quartile returns, which are largely driven by single investments. Private equity does deliver you know, mid-teens. And we, we say to the investors, we will deliver what our strategy is, and our strategy is lower middle market buyout and so we leave it at that. But that—that that is a challenge for the sector. As you walk in the door, you just don't know what the counterparty thinks about impact investing because it is a multiplicity of strategies.
1: And let's just briefly—you know—an incredible privilege among them in my new role is that I get to sit at the table in some of the social entrepreneurs fund investment committee discussions. And it's just fascinating for me to hear all of you with a ton of experience think about. Who else might be looking at this, and therefore, what is our role? So there really is a question, I think, of additionality. Um, and I would just love to get your perspective on that. It's not necessarily where the entire industry must, must go, to Brian's point. Um, this is a term that describes many different um, investors with investment hurdles. But how do you think about it?
3: I mean, I think it's evolving. So I think that it, when we started talking about this, concessionary is the first word people would say, so you're doing impact, that means you don't care about returns. I mean, say, well, you know, no. But to be fair, venture is a very liquid market. So we're always talking about mark-to-market value of our portfolio, which is on par with other vintage, similar size stage investments of non-impact type business. What I've been fascinated over the last five years is the interplay of being an impact investor and traditional venture funds. And so we've seen um, both things happen. One is, as we built reputation, we've seen um, companies that are doing quite well raising money looking for an impact investor at the table in terms of governance and in terms of preserving the mission of the company. So we've been asked to come in and sit there and make sure that they stay on target and that we push back against the traditional investors. And I've had a lot of those conversations and they remind me a little bit of scenes from Silicon Valley if anyone watches it. Ross Hanneman. Anyway, um, so um, it's been really interesting to, to sit at the table for that. And then other times, we're the venture investors, and we've proved there's a business model in a real market um, as the, imp- I'm sorry, the impact investors, and, tr- and crowded in and brought in traditional venture money. And so we've seen both of those happen. But I think the thing to remember is that only 1% of investable assets are venture. And um, yet, I'd say 100%, 99% of the conversation is around venture. Um, and um, that's where a lot of the talent goes. A lot of really smart young people are going into being entrepreneurs, running these companies. And so there's a very wide side of the funnel right now of new startups, early stage companies, not profitable companies. That's where the majority of the deal flow is if you go into uh, break even or for-profit, it starts to get down to a trickle, and there's now um, billions of dollars chasing those deals. So if you don't have a reputation or a track record and you're popping into the profitable side, there's a lot of crowding in and already proven business models, Ever5, for example, things that are working and are just piling in. Where is Rise gonna put their $1.5 billion? I think, by nature, the fact that we have so much money—five billion from UBS just announced—there's lots of dollars chasing. If you're talking about venture, um, you're going to have to broaden your definition of impact in order to put those dollars to work.
1: Mm-hmm. So, if we have a crystal ball, or, or better yet—and I know Daniel, you may not want to even talk about the future of this field, because, because in your mind, there it's not a field, or it's not a field you're going to be in. But, um, <laughs> but if you, if, so. Only, only in a gathering like this do we get to continue to quote SSIR articles. Um, <laughs> but I want to, so one of my favorites from years ago is Paul Brest and Kelly Bourne who talk about purse capacity just because you never get to, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically divining market opportunities other people aren't seeing. So, so put aside the future of this industry. If you had the five billion or the one billion, or you're raising your next fund, where do you see, where would you be putting that money? Um, in venture and other types of deals and other sectors, sort of where are your next, where's your pipeline?
4: Uh, that's above my pay grade I'll, I'll tell you where I would so I'll tell you where we're in tra- I mean I, so I'll, I'll say two things one you know there's to, to everyone's point there are tri- there's like 13 trillion dollars of assets in the world and something like 15 billion is in, is in impact investing so it's a really small category and and I, I I'm a little heretical and I throw a little of a stone because I think it's helpful in, a, in this kind of environment but I really do believe it's important that everybody who has that access to that multi-trillion dollar balance sheet that's out there investing, that they think really hard about backing all sorts of different uh, market opportunities that um, are more socially oriented. Because if you don't, you're gonna be backing things that people in this room probably don't believe in. And and I think that my fundamental kind of uh, encouragement to everybody is, um, whatever level of risk you're willing to take, in terms of new managers, emerging managers, emerging asset classes that might have a positive social good, that's probably more important to your mission than a lot of the other things going on. And so I'd encourage you to think about that. Where we're focused is there's a massive disconnect between how we educate people and how they get jobs. And probably the single, I mean, I, I firmly believe the reason we have an a, a, a Arab Spring and the subsequent aftermath, while we have malaise in Europe, while we have certain political leaders here, is because our education system is fundamentally disconnected from employment. And, and there's a reason for this. When you and I went to school, most people went to school to learn. I was a history major, I studied the great books. I mean, I can quote Odysseus, right? I'll, I'll, I'll do Latin, because I'm the est estuicet in tres partes. right? All Gauls divided in three parts. Um, and and so, for some reason, Goldman Sachs hired me as an analyst. Big mistake for Goldman. <laughs> I was probably the worst anal- analyst in my class. Um, but today, 92% of people who go to college do so to get a better job. And if you look at the developing world, it's effectively 110%. Okay, In the developing world, families scrape together years of savings to pay for a month at our university in Malawi right and people talk about building their education like they build their house one room at a time it's very compelling and people do that not because they want them to learn sartre but because they want their kids to have a better life and that disc and and then you, know, you take that 92% in the US, 150% in the developing world. And you compare it with the fact that only 11% of hiring managers think that, employee, that, that graduates of college are actually prepared for work. Colleges have much bigger staffs focused on um, raising money from people like you than they do on getting their kids jobs. That is the wrong approach. So w- what I think the biggest investable area for us is attacking the the crisis, the gap from education to employment, and so you know that's effectively 100% of our of what we're focused on.
3: I was just going to add to that. I think one of the, I mean, we don't we don't interact with low-income communities in a in a. Financially efficient manner in any in any aspect and indigenous populations mostly intersect with society today Through prisons and through emergency rooms and homeless shelters essentially and people sort of move between those three Um, And education is probably one level up from there Um, So I think if you're just looking at it if you couldn't care less about these people you're looking at as a taxpayer It doesn't make sense and I think that's, something, that's an argument that's quite compelling. We spend $800 billion in the government every year, and we measure about 1% of that spend to see if it's effective, to the point of our earlier panel. So I think um, there are lots of better ways and lots of business models to interact in a way that saves taxpayer dollars and puts a lower cost on, on addressing this community, creates better ways to educate them, and better ways to find jobs. One other point I'd make on your earlier thing was simply, I don't find concessionary what comes up when I'm fundraising now, I find people saying, why are you so small? Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> supply uh, you know, is, is not caught up with demand. There seems to be a lot of dollars chasing very few deals and the very high net worth investors are saying you should be a billion dollar fund. I can't put a billion dollars to work. I know that for sure. So I wouldn't take that if someone were offering it. I just um, I I find that that's a huge disconnect in the marketplace between supply and demand.
2: Las Vegas will take your money.
3: They'll
2: take it. Just quickly uh, to connect what Liz was saying about the availability of capital in the prior um, panel. and Paul Brest and I have had this ongoing debate about how good impact investors are at measuring impact. Um, I I say the word just as good as philanthropy, which is not particularly good for the most part. Um, But foundations at their core can measure a set of activities that are a proxy for impact. Did I give to a 501C3? Did they complete the grant report? Did the money get spent on what we thought it was? And there's at least a baseline of assurance that that will happen because it's a core part of the business model for how the money flows through the sector. In impact investing, it's not a core part of the business model and it's not a core capability of the team. And so as you see more and more money going to larger and larger asset managers who may or may not understand what impact is, I think it's a fundamental risk for the sector that we don't figure out the way that you measure and report on impact so that an asset manager like the Rise Fund or like University Ventures, which doesn't call itself impact, but is having impact and might be raising impact capital, can play on the same field as an Acumen Fund or a Bridges or a a a TCEF. And if we don't answer that, I think in the next three or four years, then the question of impact investing will be a different one.
0: That was the panel discussing the future of impact investing. Afterwards, the audience heard from Nicholas Hazard, founder of the Paris-based INCO, a global organization working towards an economy that is inclusive and sustainable. Through INCO, Nicholas oversees a 100 million euro investment fund, a media organization, and incubation and workforce development programs around the world. Nicholas provided a European perspective on the future of impact investing.
5: Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian, for for having me today. Actually, we met with Brian uh, six years ago, and six years ago, I wanted to create I came to the US for a conference that is called SOCAP, that you probably all know. And I wanted to create in Europe, in continental Europe, the first impact investing fund. I say continental Europe, but I should say now Europe, as the UK is not part of it anymore. So now there's more space for actors uh, like us to uh, to, be, uh, to to be build uh, more funds like that. So the idea was really to, implement this kind of impact investing, which was not very famous in Europe at that time. And we wanted to do that while SRI is very strong and it's still very strong in Europe. So here you're more struggling between impact investing and philanthropy. In Europe it's more a debate around SRI and impact investing as uh, SRI is a huge part of the global investment right now uh, on the market. And so the idea of this fund, um, was really to set up this idea of uh, uh, helping social enterprises and invest in, in these companies that have this double impact. But we wouldn't have been able to do it without regulation. As, and as I'm European, I really believe in regulation in the way it's really fostering and helping the market to grow. And for the last five years now, the impact investing market has doubled in Europe every year. So it's really become a huge trend and it's about to become 1% of the global investment market for continental Europe. And why that? And I'd like to focus on one regulation that I think is very, very, has been very efficient. Uh, Of course, the European Investment Bank created a European investment fund to do impact investing. So it was enabling also the small countries, it's a matching fund, to create more funds. But I think like, for example, if I take the example of France, something very, very easy has been uh, put in place five years ago, which is to uh, the obligation, of course, we're in France, so the constraint, uh, to, uh, for each um, employee's saving plan that are offered by banks or, or banking institution to offer one impact investing fund as so they they can choose. Actually, so you can have like, I don't know, 10, 15 different employee saving plans, but you need to offer one. It's not that you need to buy it, they don't, people, there's no incentive to buy it, but it's just to offer it. And actually, it's very interesting, because in this case, like 90% of the money goes to SRI, and 10% uh, goes to uh, social enterprises and to impact investing fund. And that has been helping a lot creating and and it's doubling every year. It's really growing a lot and that has been very, very efficient. And now what we're doing is that we're gonna um, set up and and eventually with with our new government as well, it's gonna be uh, easier to do that. To work on also pension funds and life insurance funds. And it's always this idea of just offering to the public, offering to uh, the people who have the money, the possibility to invest in this kind of uh, of funds, not doing 100% in impact investing, but having this mix, 90% in SRIs, or classical corporates, and 10% in uh, social enterprise. And actually after five years, the performance of these funds that we call solidarity funds is as good as the rest of the fund. It's the average, it's the same, it's exactly the same. And so it's really showing and proving and through this kind of regulation that you can have a strong impact on the community and at the same time, be also uh, very profitable and I think it's a good link with the next panel. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this special
0: episode of Returns on Investment. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts these days and tell others about it by leaving a rating and a comment. For more on impact investing, be sure to subscribe to Impact Alpha's daily email newsletter at impactalpha.com. Thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.